Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, you can find the audio or the video versions. You just have to search Faith on Hill, and that's where you'll find all of our online and podcast content. Uh, we appreciate the, the likes and the subscribes and all that kind of stuff that comes with social media. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill, and you can uh, check out our website, faithonhill.com. Now, in person, it's summertime. We are out in the field doing lawn chair church. If you haven't experienced that before, it's a lot of fun. It's super Super chill. Uh, people bring their their beach blankets, their lawn chairs. We have pop up tents for shade that we put up. Uh, you know, we're basically just uh, hanging out, enjoying the weather. We had our first one this last Sunday, and we could not have had a better kickoff to Lawn Chair Church. So enjoying that quite a bit. We're going to continue our study in the story of Elijah this morning. So if you have a Bible, open to First Kings chapter seventeen. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that there was this prophet Elijah who spoke to the evil king Ahab. He was the worst king Israel ever had. And he said, hey, because you have disobeyed God, and not only have you disobeyed him, but you have outright publicly rejected him and turned to the worship of Baal. And you believe that Baal is the God who controls the rains and the crops and the harvest. He says, because I have prayed. It will not rain in Israel until I say so. And so God told him to go and flee to this hidden ravine east of the Jordan River. And there God took care of him. But then the water in the brook there ran out because of the drought. So God said, hey, chapter 17, verse 7 of the book of 1 Kings, it says, sometimes later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I might have a drink? By the way, this is normal. It's standard hospitality customs in that day and in that land. And I'll tell you, in parts of the world that are hot, even parts of America, there are places in America where it is illegal to deny someone a drink of water. If someone comes to your door and says, may I have a glass of water, you legally have to supply it. In their culture, it was unheard of to not provide water to a guest, to a traveler. <clears throat> So he asked her this question, and in verse 11, it says that she was going to get it, and he called, and bring me a piece of bread. This also, by the way, would not have been out of line. This was culturally totally acceptable and normal. You cared for travelers so that when your time to travel came, you would understand that as you went from town to town, you would equally be cared for. And she responded, verse 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. And I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and then die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. 
and then make something for yourself and your son. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did what Elijah told her. And there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. And in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. And he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come here to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied, and he took her, he took him from her and carried him into the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed and he cried out to the Lord, Yahweh, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow that I am staying with, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out over the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Yahweh, my God, let the boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and life returned to the boy, and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house, and he gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord is from your mouth and is true. This is God's word. Hey, so let me ask you a question. What does God owe us? What does God owe you? Does God owe you anything? Does God owe me anything? Now, I know that we talked about this a bit when we studied the book of Job a little while back. You know, this whole question of does God owe us anything? Is God right to do what he does? But there are definitely people who believe that God or life or destiny or karma or whatever owes them something. Now, I will refer to God because I believe that there is a God. I believe that something is higher than us. I believe that something designed created this universe. Do I know exactly how he accomplished his creation? Was it instantaneous or was it over millennia and millions of years through evolutionary processes? I don't know. There's a lot of room for that one. But I believe there's a God and I believe he created and designed the world that we live in. It's not, it, how it is now is not how it's supposed to be, but it still bears the traces of his handiwork. So I believe there's a God, and I'll refer to him as opposed to karma or destiny or, or some vague force. I believe there is a God, and I believe that God cares about people. And so with that in mind, does God owe us anything? Does God owe me health? Does God owe it to me to provide for me? Does God owe it to us to take care of us? Does God owe it to us that bad things won't happen? Or, you know what? Bad things happen. That's just life. But when bad things happen, God will make it right. God will fix it. God will provide justice. What does God owe us? I don't believe that God owes us everything. But I also firmly believe that God has given us everything. If I believe that God owes me something, I misunderstand my situation. We misunderstand our 
situation. What do I mean by that? I mean this. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person has fallen short. Every single person has rebelled against God. Every single person has failed to meet the standards of God. That's called sin. The word sin means to miss the mark. And God declares that the wages, the consequences, the rewards of sin is death. So, when I, even if I won't say it, even if I don't verbalize it, if I just, in my heart, in my head, in the way that I live my life, in the attitudes that I present, I indicate in any way that I believe God owes me something. I'm misunderstanding my situation. You see, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I have earned the rewards or the wages of sin, death. But because God loves me and you and everyone so much that he did not want anyone to die. He did not want anyone to experience the justice that our sins deserved. So if I walk around acting or believing or living like God owes me something, I misunderstand my situation. God doesn't owe me anything. I'm the one who's in all kinds of trouble. If I believe that God owes me something, I misunderstand God's love for me and for you. What do I mean by that? Love is giving. The love of God is selfless, sacrificial. Jesus sacrificed himself to save us. It's not transactional. I remember once... I've told this story before, but I remember once God told me to help a prostitute, a literal prostitute. And after I had helped her, her car had broken down. And after I helped her, she made offers of payment. And at first it was just like, hey, I just bought groceries. Do you want some of this stuff I bought? And I was like, no, I'm good. And then she said, do you want a date? And I was like, well, I, I know what, in my head, I'm like, I know what that means. And I said, no, I don't want anything. I said, Jesus loves you. Jesus forgave me all of my sins. And if Jesus has forgiven everything that I've ever done, how can I do anything else but just freely give what God has given me? Some people only know about love in terms of transactional relationship. My parents will love me if I do good in school, if I do good in sports, if I don't get out of line, if I do the right things, then I will earn the love of my family or my friends. If I work hard enough, then maybe, maybe I will feel like I really have earned their love and respect. Maybe my spouse will notice me if I do this thing. If, if I do this thing and then they will reciprocate with the thing that I want and it doesn't become a giving relationship, it becomes a transactional relationship. And this goes on all through our society where, where love and is, is built around transaction. 
What God says is my love was built around a transaction, but it was this transaction. Jesus exchanges our life of sin and death for his life of freedom and peace and joy. He's done the transaction. And if we sit around and we go, yeah, but can I pay you for it? We misunderstand the love of God. And if we think that God owes us something, like I've somehow done something great for you, we misunderstand our situation. We misunderstand God's love for us that he has given freely to us despite not owing us a thing. We misunderstand obligation because there are things that God has said he will do. He has said that he will provide for his children. He has said that he will bring justice. He has said that he will do certain things or not do certain things. He doesn't owe it to us, but he has chosen to obligate himself. But we misunderstand that. Let's say, for example, God says, I will bring justice to this world. And we say, well, do it right now. Do it in my time. We misunderstand. God has said, I will do it. He didn't obligate himself as to when and where. He just said he will do it. God says he will provide for us. We talked about this last week. God provided for Elijah. He said, go and flee because the king wants to kill you. Well, couldn't you just provide for me by like offing the king? Nope. Okay, so I'm going to flee. And then he gets there and, and the way that God provides for him would have been really awkward for him. And then out seemingly out of nowhere, God says, all right, this way I'm providing for you is done. I want you to go over to Zarephath and you're going to stay with this widow there. And that's how I'm going to provide for you. I like, I was comfortable here in the ravine. This became home. Why are you moving me? God has obligated himself to us of his own choice. He has said, I will provide for you. I will care for you. I will defend you. All of those things are true, not out of obligate, not because he owes us, because, but because he has chosen to make these obligations. But that doesn't mean we get to determine the terms. You know, God, you owe it to me. Well, God said he'd provide. He didn't say how. You need to defend me. God said he would. He didn't say when and where and, and how that will look like. But these questions are at the core of the part of the Bible we are going to read and study and look at today. He gets there and he says, he, he gets there and he's been told there's a widow there who is going to, you're, the, you're going to stay with her. That's what I'm going to provide for you. So he gets there, he meets this person, finds out she's a widow and says, hey, can you get me a drink? As we said earlier, totally common. That would have been normal and understood. Hey, can you... Bake me some bread. And she says, no, I can't. Wait a minute. You're the person God told me that's going to provide for me. And you're saying, no, God. Hey, I'm doing this thing. And God, you said you were going to provide for me. And now there's a hiccup. There's a bump, something unexpected. It's not going smoothly and easily. I don't just walk into town and the widow comes up to me and says, oh, you must be the, the person that God told me to provide for. Come into my house. I've got dinner ready for you. We're not obligated, or sorry, God's not obligated to work in our time. God's not obligated to work in our way. God, you owe it to me. God said he'd provide. He didn't say that it would be easy or that it would go off without a hitch or there would never be an issue or any confusion. But he says to the woman, as surely as the Lord lives, you will have enough. 
you and your house. It's interesting to me that when he asks for a piece of bread in verse 11, in verse 12, the woman replies, as surely as Yahweh, your God, lives. She recognized him, whether it was by appearance or dress or accent or whatever it was, she recognized him as one of the children of Israel. She recognized that he was not from Sidon, that he did not worship her gods, that he was of a different faith, a different people. And she acknowledges your God is the living God. I have a suspicion that there were people in the surrounding peoples, the, the, the different tribes and city-states that surrounded Israel, who when King Ahab publicly began to worship Baal, their God, they kind of said, what are you doing, man? You guys have survived and flourished for hundreds of years. We know the stories. We know how your God brought you into the promised land. We know how your God has defeated your enemies and provided and done all of these things. What are you doing? Uh, we, we pray to Baal, but you know what? Let's be honest. Like, I don't know if, if there's anything there. Your God's the living God. What are you doing? I believe firmly that there are people in our culture who do not believe in Jesus, but they know that he's real. I believe that because I've known people who know the truth and still reject. They, they know that he's real. They don't want to follow him. And they look at people who do profess faith when they go off track. And they say, what are you doing? Why are you here? What are you doing here with me? I'm in the gutter. Why are you here? Now, we don't know how God sustained them. It's said that in faith, the woman made the, the bread for Elijah, made some for herself. That was it. That's all she had. And then it says that the jar of flour and the jug of oil were not used up. They weren't living like kings. Ravens weren't bringing meat to Elijah anymore. They were living off of bread and water. That was it. But they were living. They were provided for. Elijah might have kind of looked back and said, man, you know, I'm, I'm in a soft bed now. I've got a roof over my head. But you know what? When I was out in the ravine, I had meat. Now it's just bread and water. You know what? Again, God doesn't owe us anything. He's not obligated for anything. But he provided for them. We aren't told how he provided for them. It just says that the jar and the jug were never empty. They were sustained. What if there were times where the last is used up and then the next morning they got up and they looked in the jar and the jug and miraculously there was more. I think that's how most people think it worked out and maybe it did sometimes. But what if it was, oh my goodness, I opened a, a you know, root cellar, I'd, I'd forgotten we had an old root cellar that we stopped using years ago, and there's some oil in here that's still good. What if that was the way that God provided? What if 
you know, there was something that happened and, you know, uh, they, they were running out of the oil and the, 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 the flour. And then, you know, Elijah went out and worked a day in the fields and God provided that way. What I'm saying is this, it may be one way. It may be that just every morning the flour and the oil were refilled just enough for that day. That could be. And there's certainly biblical precedence for it. But it may be that there were multiple various ways that God provided for them. However it was done, it was done by the hand of God. And in this season, God is sustaining Elijah. He has safety. He's outside of the reach of King Ahab. And he has provision. He has a a bed to sleep in, roof over his head, food to eat. The woman who is with him, she was going to starve. She thought she was going to die. That was her take on the situation. There's a drought in the land. Things are bad. I have enough. I have enough for today and that's it. And, you know, if you understand kind of the situation with widows in ancient cultures, they were kind of left on their own. You know, what happened? Maybe there was a plague that went through the land. And in that plague, her husband died and her husband's family died. And maybe her family had died three winters before in a different plague. And she was just alone. Or, or we, we don't know what we, the specifics of the situation was. But, but she seems to be on her own. She's left destitute. And how is it that she was saved from dying? It's because there was a believer present. She says, as surely as Yahweh, your God lives. There was a believer present, and that changed her whole situation. Think about that. God, the God of the universe, the God who knows all things, knew that there was a woman in Sidon who needed to be saved. Literally, she was going to die. And God said, nope, I don't want her to die. It's not her time. So he sends Elijah so that by his presence, she would not die. You know, you could sit around and say like, God, why are you, you know, why am I suffering? Why am I going through these things? Is it possible that the presence of your suffering is bringing life to someone else? And then after a while, we read that the woman's son became sick and died. And she goes to Elijah and said, did the Lord bring you here to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She knows of her sin. She's been around Elijah, present with him. Maybe he's spoken of the ways of God. Baal worship often involved um, at times, human sacrifice, unspeakable things. And she hears, wait, your sacrifice doesn't involve killing our, our children? The Ashtoreth pole, your, sac- your form of worship respects men and women. It doesn't use men and women. Maybe it's the first time anyone's ever treated her with respect as a person. And by the time that her son dies, she doesn't say the Lord, your God. She just simply says the Lord. 
And this tragedy comes upon her and her family. And you might say, well, what was the point of all this? God miraculously delivered us from starvation only for him to die by sickness? And Elijah cries out. And let me tell you this. Elijah entered the town knowing that there would be enough food. Why? Because God had told him. He didn't know how. But he was told by God, go there and there you will be provided for. So he knew. God had told him. There was no question about the food. God had not made any promises that we know of about the health of the boy or anyone else in the family. Sometimes we look back and like, God, you owe this to me. And we're claiming that God owes us something that he never promised. God, you have to do this for me. Why? Did he promise? Did he say that he was going to? He said to Elijah, you will be provided. The food will be there. He didn't promise that no one would get sick. He didn't promise that no one would go through a season of suffering. That was never promised. We don't know how the jar was sustained. We don't know how the jug of oil was refilled. We just know that he did it. We don't know how God raised this boy back from the dead, but he did. And the woman's response was, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh is from your mouth and is true. She's a believer now. What's the point of all this? Okay, first, the woman and her son are saved from death. There is the presence of believers that brings life. I know, I said this uh, recently on one of our, our podcasts, um, but I know what goes on in the church or parachurch or large organizations that are connected to the church. I know that there are terrible things in the history of the church. I know about the boarding schools in Canada. I know about abuse in what are called Christian orphanages. I know more than most. I know about the abuse of priests and pastors to children and those who should be in their care. I know about those things. But here's what I also know. That churches are working to bring clean water to parts of the world that do not have it. I know that churches, as they spring up in troubled places, bring life. My guy I know named Josh, I don't know him super well, but I've known him for about 10, 15 years. And he left the cushiest job you could imagine. He left pastoring a church in Kauai. And then he moved to Orange County, not as nice as Kauai, but still pretty nice. And he was working there for a few years. And then God called him and his family him and his family to go to Baltimore and not to the nice outskirts of Baltimore, not to Chevy Chase or to, you know, uh, these different places in the, in the suburbs where, where it can be very pleasant and nice. No, he went to one of the worst neighborhoods in Baltimore and he started a Bible study. And then he started volunteering at an outreach center at a community center that was just distributing food. 
And then his Bible study grew into a church. And as it grew, he was, you know, working basically as a, his job was working at the, uh, the, the community center. And then he pastored the church along with it. And then his church kind of took over the community center. And so here's this church pastored by a guy who left paradise, literally, to go to Baltimore. And it's bringing life, food, helping people get into rehab, helping people get into different social services. I did a paper in college. There's a meme that goes around that says that every year the government loses $71 billion in revenue because churches aren't subject to taxes. That meme is incorrect, by the way. The, the more likely number is about $2 billion. But, here, here, follow me on this. There is ample research by non-Christian secular groups, ample research, the University of Pennsylvania, Baylor University, um, other organizations such as the... Uh, uh, Tax Foundation, which is a nonprofit that focuses on just tax policy. And they have all documented that the church in America goes under the radar and brings about $70 billion on average in social services to America. I saw an interview recently with somebody who said that you know, they were being asked, like, are you bitter against the church? Because they had grown up in the church and now they don't believe. And he said, no, I'm not bitter at the church. He said, where I lived, the church was the only one that cared about people like me, poor people. The, the, the church was a safe place for us. Um, you know, and it's, and it's not always public. And a lot of times it's under the radar. And we don't talk about some of the things that we do. Because some of the things that we do are, are like, hey, we're not going to say, hey, that person that lives down the road from you had a hard winter and we were able to help him out. You know, that, that's the kind of under the radar stuff that happens. The woman was saved from death because of the presence of believers. And I believe that the presence of Christians in a community brings life. I believe that is true worldwide. I believe that is true despite all the false failures and flaws of individual Christians and churches collectively. I don't believe that's just true because I believe it. I believe it's true because I have seen the, the documented evidence. But as she was saved from death, from starvation, literal starvation, she was brought to faith and strengthened. Because Elijah was going to leave. Elijah wasn't going to stay there forever. But she was strengthened in her faith. She didn't just see the food continue to be sustained, but she saw her son brought back to life. Her faith wasn't shallow, it was deep. What's the point of all this? There was a woman that God cared about and said, I want to bring her to faith, and I want to strengthen her, and I want to keep her alive. I want to do these things. Elijah, this is your moment to do that. And during this time, Elijah was sustained. First of all, he's kept alive. He didn't starve. He wasn't arrested by the king and executed. God had plans for Elijah that we will get into in the coming weeks. But in this moment, he was sustained as he waited for the next move. And he was strengthened for the bigger task. It was a big deal to go and stand before the king and say, there will be no rain until I say because of your sin. And then he has to flee because the king's trying to kill him. 
That's a big deal. But now he has other things that God wants him to do. And during this time, he is strengthened. During this time, he sees God provide. During this time, he is leading people towards God. During this time, he is involved in one of the bigger miracles in the Bible, raising somebody from the dead. There was no wasted time. This woman thought her days were over, but God had plans for her. I want to speak to old people. I love the older folks in our church so much. Society will tell you there comes a point where you are no longer useful. And I understand there are certain jobs you just can't do anymore. There's battles that it's time for the younger folks to fight. But God has never said that you have no use or purpose. I was talking to a friend recently. And he was telling me about uh, an older believer that we both know and that we both respect. And now this, this older brother who's in his late 70s is having a really hard time because he's built his whole identity on things he could do when he was younger. And now he's older, he can't do those same things. And my friend had a conversation with him and was telling him, God still has so many things for you to do if you could just accept them. Elijah was a guy who had stood before kings. Elijah was a, was a man who would once again stand before kings, stand before powerful people, stand before those in positions of power and authority, and he is a notable figure in human history. And here in this two, three years that he is living in obscurity, his time was not wasted. This woman was important to God and his time with her was valuable and important both for him and for this woman. The woman thought her days were done, but God wasn't done with her. Friends, if you're older and you think, oh, God's just, I'm just waiting it out now. The woman says, I'm going to bake some bread and then my son and I are going to eat it and then we're just going to wait to die. That's not what God has for us. God has plans for you. Pray. Seek them out. To the young people, Elijah was in a waiting period. And he was probably a young man. He was probably somebody who thought, man, I've got some things to do. Why is God keeping me here? Doesn't he know, you know, I, I want to be active and moving and going. And he's being held in place. Because during that time, God wanted to work in him, and he wanted to work in the lives of this woman and her family. There's no wasted time. If you're in that holding pattern, God's not wasting your time in that holding pattern. God is strengthening us. He is working in us. He is moving in us. He is aligning the pieces on the chessboard. I was speaking to another friend of mine this last week and he, we hadn't seen each other in a long time and we were catching up on things and we had dinner and we were just talking and he was saying how basically he's had this major change in the last year of his life. And, and he said, I cannot believe that I am here doing what I'm doing and it's amazing. But he had to go through about two years where things were on hold, things were moving, things were being lined up. And he says, now I can look back and see everything had to be lined up on the chessboard, so to speak, for all of this stuff to work out. But in the moment, it was so frustrating. In the moment, it felt like God was just putting me on the sidelines. In the moment, it felt like I was just spinning my wheels, but God was doing a work. 
He was doing a work in this person's life. He was doing a work over here. He was aligning things. And there comes the moment after about three years where God's going to say to Elijah, next week we're going to look at it. Okay, Elijah, it's time to get back in this and do this again. But he was not wasting Elijah's time. You may think, you know what, God's just barely sustaining me. There's just enough left in the tank emotionally, spiritually, physically for me to just get through today. And I don't know how I'll get through tomorrow, but the oil and the flour were sustained. And if God has got you in a holding place, trust that he has plans, that it is not wasted time. And fight the temptation towards resentment and bitterness to act as if God owes us something because he doesn't. But he has obligated himself. He has said, I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will lead you. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. All of these things are God, things that God has obligated himself towards us of his own accord. And we can come back and say, God, you promised the Holy Spirit. Would you fill me now? God, you promised to provide. Let me have faith to see your provision. God, you, you said that you would defend me and I am in need of defense. There is no wasted time. There is no wasted day. There is the work that God is doing. And we can have great faith, comfort, and hope in that truth. God doesn't owe us anything, but he has given us everything because he gave us himself and Jesus. Jesus made the way of life possible for us. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. Jesus is coming back for us. We rejoice in that. I pray that God would bless you this week in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would know his peace. I pray that you would know his patience. I pray that you would know his hope. I pray that you would know his power. Amen. All I know is I know that you are here now. Still my heart, let your voice be over.